KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Ever hear of the Garmin Doctrine? It essentially gives the federal government the final word over what's protected by the National Labor Relations Act. Now its legitimacy is being challenged in the Supreme Court, and the implications could spell trouble for unions. It's a real gutting of individuals' ability to participate in collective action, but also to have that action be protected under the law. Dr. Laura Bucci is an assistant professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. Her colleague, Dr. Susan Liebel, takes it a step further. She thinks that this ruling could play out in a way that further underscores a changing dynamic in the Supreme Court. Every area that the Supreme Court sees is affected right now, and That means that the legitimacy of the court is affected. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In Depth, we take a long look at the case of Glacier Northwest versus the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and how it could trigger a big change for workers' rights. Susan, I'll start with you. If you could just kind of give us a quick primer of this case that was before the Supreme Court that they recently heard arguments on. Well, this case comes from the state of Washington, and Glacier Northwest is a corporation that sells and delivers ready-mix concrete to businesses across the state. It employs about 80 or 90 truck drivers that deliver the concrete, and it's Teamsters Local 174 that is the exclusive union representative for those truckers. And in 2017, there were protracted negotiations for a new collective bargaining agreement, and the Glacier truckers went on strike. They reported for work. Some of them did early runs with their trucks loaded with cement. When the strike began, drivers returned the trucks to the company's headquarters and they walked off the job. So some of the drivers had not yet made their deliveries and they had cement in the truck. So they left their trucks running so the cement wouldn't instantly harden inside the truck's drums. But the company wasn't able to deliver the cement. Some of it did harden and that required it to be destroyed and carted away. And the strike lasted another week. They came to an agreement on a new contract. So the company claims that the Teamsters purposely timed their strike to inflict harm on the company, and that they should be liable for any costs associated with the hardening of that cement that was already loaded. The Teamsters said, like, this is an unfair labor practice, and they filed with the National Labor Relations Board, saying that Glacier, you know, had filed these state damages in retaliation for the workers striking. And the NLRB counsel, general counsel, issued a complaint finding merit to the Teamsters allegation. And that case is still pending. So the courts had to deal with this. And and they also had to deal with whether they should even deal with this in the first place. And so state court, first state court said, like, this is not ours to do. We have to wait for the National Labor Relations Board. They need to assess whether this is protected strike conduct. Then the appellate court reversed and saying, like, nope, they didn't have to wait. And then the Washington Supreme Court dismissed the case. Anyway, it comes to the Supreme Court now with a very basic question, you know, whether Or in what circumstances can an employer sue a union for damage resulting from a strike? Laura, it seems to me this is a very unique situation. I saw a lot of headlines talking about what this could mean going forward, and this this could be a big deal. 
are there a lot of situations that would come up? I, and I don't just mean concrete, but I just mean where property is damaged or, or something like there is a lot of concrete, but that would fall into this where this ruling could have an effect? Any strike comes with monetary damages. Any strike, like depending on how broadly that that ruling is read, anytime workers stop working, any company could claim that there is monetary damage to their business. Otherwise, the strike is not relevant, important enough. So I think the question here is about how much power individual businesses are going to have to kind of mediate when unions are able to strike and what the financial consequences would be to doing that. As Susan pointed out with the with the case law, there's been existing kind of doctrines in place. The, the most common here is going to be what's called the Garmin Doctrine. What that does is it, it preempts the states from acting in cases when the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, should be applicable, either prohibiting something or allowing something, right? So here we have the case where state court was asked to weigh in about whether the business had the right to file for damages, right? So there's a question about, is that even the right action that states can can rule on this? And are we going to just kind of disregard what exists in the current version of the NLRA? It's entirely possible we do, right? It's entirely possible that we kind of revise on the fly what the NLRA means. Is that good? Probably not. <laughs> but but it's it's possible given the way the kind of current court is deciding. We'll see. Yeah, there's like two things going on. The court, uh, you know, it, preemption is bad. So like preempting state courts is bad. So in this case, at least what it seems like the conservative part of the court is is saying is like, that's not good. We should let state courts do this. But actually, those same six justices don't believe that when it comes to, for example, prohibiting lawsuits against drug manufacturers. There they are like, that's okay. like preemption. Good. So so this is part of a larger problem. We have six people on the court. So we don't have a swing anymore. And the question is whether they're going to stick with precedent. That Garmin rule that Laura is talking about goes back to 1959. Nobody has questioned this. But now all of a sudden, we're saying that we don't want consistent labor law. The idea here is that we have one board that makes these decisions across the nation. And then if there were damages, and if this was not ruled an appropriate labor action, then, of course, the company sues in state court. Nobody is taking anything away from getting damages back. It's just the when. When can you do this? And the other issue that's floating around here is, besides preemption is bad, is federal government administrative state bad. So this idea that we don't want an agency to be judge, jury, and executioner, which is what was said in the court, we want it to be done at the state level also means like we don't want federal agencies to make uniform policy changes anymore. So there's a lot going on, you know, in this case. And, you know, and one thing I would say is that in the oral arguments, the lawyer for the company isn't even listening to the three liberal justices and is talking over them and not answering their questions, in part because they don't need to anymore. The court is now so lopsided that 
the argument is being made directly to the conservative justices and not to throw shade on justices uh, Sotomayor, Kagan and Brown. But they actually ended by saying like, well, if this is going to go this way, how could we not make it too terrible? So they didn't even take a principled position that Laura is pointing about how important this is to workers' rights and the ability of unions to negotiate contracts. So this this is like a very, very big moment. So Laura, I mean, if I'm understanding this right, we could see the NLRB kind of hanging in the balance here. And in a time of where we're seeing an increase in labor interest and strike action, if this thing goes completely the wrong way, maybe a lot of places say, well, I don't know if we could take the hit if we get sued for this and all of a sudden things that have already been pretty tilted towards business are tilted in a a way that I don't know that you can, can, can come back from. So I think a few things are happening here. So one is kind of the the overarching legitimacy of like federal labor law, right? That this is a question about how labor law is enforced, who it's enforced for, when, why. That's like one bad situation that's happening. The other bad situation here is that kind of throughout all of labor history, right, there's there's ununiform costs that are often imposed onto labor unions and not imposed on businesses in the same fashion, right? So, so for example, under, under existing labor law, unions are required to represent all workers in an organization, regardless of whether or not they've paid union dues, right? This is kind of classic free rider problem stuff, right? That unions are taking in less money and they still have to provide all of this legal coverage. Here, we're dealing with the situation where now any damage claimed in a strike can now be responsible to the union to pay. And none of these damages that, that, uh, businesses have to be really legitimate, the court costs alone would destroy kind of any union coffer that existed, right? And there's a financial incentive to file repeated, repeated lawsuits, right? That that this is a way to kind of build up your own power relative to the union in your area, right? And because this is an international, not just a one local, right, that often dues money is being pooled, right? Unions pool money across organizations. And so it's it's not just taking out unions in Washington state where unions have historically been very, very strong. It's also taking out some money from California or New York or wherever, wherever there are significant numbers of Teamsters, right? So it becomes this way to not only like file for damages because of wrongdoing, but also to file for damages and like hurt everyone in the process, right? That this is a a financial burden that is probably going to be insurmountable. Unions are very strategic about when they strike, incredibly so, right? This is a thoughtful process. And the idea that this could set off a chain of events that spends, you know, decades in court is not something that people would take lightly. But that means like all of the power of what unions are able to do, which is deny labor, is is kind of moot, right? It doesn't it doesn't hit in quite the same way. So all of this stuff is it's bad on a lot of levels, right? That a lot of things are happening kind of all at the same time. And and I just wanted to say that this dynamic is something that Adam Smith 
no like liberal in the sense of the left thought about in 1776. Like he said there was always a case in which these two parties had different advantages in a labor dispute. And he said, business owners have more money. They can hold out longer. They won't starve. Business owners can collude quietly to not raise wages. The public can't see it and there won't be any violence or in this case, spoiled cement. But Smith said that we needed unions and capitalism to balance those interests and that they would inevitably, he said, be loud, that they would use the loudest clamor in his 18th century word. They would sometimes use shocking violence and outrage. But he said they do this because they don't get their masters to pay them unless they do, and then they starve. And I think we've lost some of that like basic understanding of the fact that we're talking about the workers starving and the businesses will starve them out unless the strike will work and the strike won't work if if there's no threat, there's no threat to the company's profits. There's also like the idea that this comes in a moment of what's called striketober. It's almost as though it's kind of clear retribution, right? That like you saw other people striking and you saw them succeeding. And so there was this major court case that went forward that would kind of put an end to that, right? So it's it's not random timing. It's not as though this is the first strike that's ever caused any financial damage. It's also not that like these workers were particularly bad in some way, right? That from my understanding of the case, they did everything they could have to make sure that that cement didn't go bad and then that just didn't happen. So it's it's an interesting moment for these kinds of pieces of legislation. It's the equivalent of the day after the strike, everyone just happens to get fired, right? Like it's it's too too coincidental. To that point, should we not be surprised that this ended up in front of the court as it's built right now at at this time? It it seems very convenient for business owners. Well, this is a moment in which if cases like this come forward, the court will move to change the doctrine. And again, this has been the same since 1959. And and I guess I want people to understand that. We've had Republicans and Democrats disagree from 1959 forward. In fact, violently disagree about policy in the United States, including labor policy. But somehow the court consistently applied this Garmin rule, which says if this strike might be protected or arguably protected, then you can't sue yet. Like we 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 need for the National Labor Relations Board to make this determination. And the attempt is to make labor law, you know, apply uniformly. And now what we see is these cases as opportunity to radically change the rules that we lived by since 1959. And there are places to do that. The Congress can change the law. The law that was passed in 1939 can be changed and adopted and modified and work. And this is her lane. She knows tons about this. But this is a court that is not, in fact, waiting for the Congress to make these changes. They're making the changes themselves. And this means an enormous amount of power for six unelected people. 
Yeah, I I also just wanted to sort of start off by saying that the NLRB is not some like far left institution, right? That that many people are incredibly critical of the NLRB because it tends to be fairly conservative in its rulings. It's not expansive enough of workers' rights, right? Like there's there's a lot to complain about about the effectiveness of the NLRB, right? This isn't like a an argument that there's this perfect organization out there already doing this work. But I do think that the court, right, in this moment is taking its opportunity to really kind of make broad, large-scale political decisions in ways that other courts have been more hesitant to do. And it's doing them cycle after cycle, right, that this is something that most courts try to space out because there's a real question about the legitimacy of the court here, right? That if every decision upends congressional precedent, right? That like the, you're overturning laws from 1939, right? It's a real question of why are you doing this in every case that you hear? And why are you reinventing the history of policy in the country, right? That the more that that happens, the the more everyone can see the Supreme Court acting outside of law, outside of sort of equal protection, right? Like out acting outside of all of the things we want a court to be. And that kind of legitimacy loss isn't rebuildable, at least not in the same speed it's losable, right? So, I mean, you can get rid of legitimacy real fast, but but building it back can be challenging, but precedent can stand, right? That it's, there's not going to be another case that they hear in their tenure on the court, right? Which, I mean, they're all pretty young, maybe the exception of like Thomas, there's a lot of time for them left to be on the court. And if they never take up another labor case again, guess what the law is, right? And And we can change that, but with the Congress, but it's it's tricky. And I just wanted to say about what Laura said, like 66% of the American people are now reporting that they think that the Supreme Court is just going based on their own politics. So, you know, that erosion that Laura is talking about, that trust, that idea of the rule of law, which is just very intangible of like, we trust institutions to operate in a particular way. That's part of what is going on here. It's something that we would have to be very, very careful about. This this doctrine of preemption of who can go first and who has to wait for what is something that has a really significant impact on the right to strike. And if unions lose that, that would be significant. It has been central to protecting workers' bargaining power. And if employers have more leeway to argue that a strike has caused economic damage for which the union can be held liable then that right is weakened. And as Laura said earlier, and I think it bears repeating, even the threat of litigation with its intended costs, financial costs, time costs, can have a chilling effect on the exercise of rights. And so at a time of historic levels of workers organizing and public support for unions growing, the outcome in this case has the potential to slow or reverse that momentum. I mean, this is just huge. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Susan Liebel and Dr. Laura Bucci right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. 
And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Susan Liebel and Dr. Laura Bucci. Susan, you mentioned one of the lawyers is ignoring the liberal justice and focusing on the conservatives for obvious reasons. What did you hear in the arguments here? And if there is a middle road, what could it look like? So this was weird. It was a weird day at the Supreme Court. And I think everybody, you know, noticed it. First of all, the conservatives were rather quiet. They didn't not need to make much of their case and they didn't pick things apart. They kind of sat back in a sense because the company is asking for something that they already want. There was a lot of questioning by the liberal justices, Sotomayor, uh, Kagan, and Jackson. Justice Gorsuch is important to note is at war with the administrative state. So he would like something like the NLRB to go away. He he, he is a in, in many of these cases. So there is all of a sudden the conservatives are conservative in a different way in this more radical sort of war on government way as opposed to like being institutionalists. What happened in terms of a middle ground was the Biden administration. So in this case, we heard from the lawyers from the Teamsters we heard from the lawyers from uh, the concrete company, but we also heard from the Biden administration's solicitor general. And what they were urging, nobody liked, but it is very much this kind of middle ground that I think that you're you're seeking. And what they were suggesting was, why don't we wait? What if we were and and no again nobody found this satisfying but they said like well maybe Glacier is correct that the fact that the Washington Supreme Court made a mistake that's procedural stuff so the Biden administration tried to give the the company something but said like maybe the state court should have accepted what the concrete company thought of as the facts like say admit or presume that. The Teamsters intentionally destroyed Glacier's property. But there's no dispute among the parties that vandalism renders a strike unprotected. So the government argues like the case should be sent back to the state court. And there they agree with Glacier. Where they disagree is what should happen next. They're saying like, okay, since the last time this was handled, the NLRB's general counsel has done her own investigation. And the government argues that it's no longer appropriate for the state court to rely on Glacier's facts because now they have the NLRB's um, uh, determination and finding. And so this should all wait. So in other words, what the Biden administration understands is that there's no way they're going to get the decision they want out of this Supreme Court. None. There's, it's not possible. So what they want is for there to be no decision, for to find a way to save face for both sides, make this go back to the state court and hope that if the NLRB rules in the union's favor, that this can be step one. And then the concrete company can sue for damages, and that'll be done at the state court level. That's what's called a tort or a civil proceeding. But they they want to make sure the Supreme Court doesn't strike down Garmin. So they're behaving very strategically, perhaps timidly if you want to criticize it, but very strategically. We don't want these six people to rewrite Garmin. We would like to put that off as long as possible. I don't know how to put it any differently, but this is very bad. 
I don't see a world in which the Supreme Court does not rule in favor of the company. I don't see a, a, a world in which the kind of retaliatory suing doesn't start. I think there's some questions here about how the court has weighed in on labor relations in the last, say, five years, right? So we have Janice in 2018. We had the recent case on vaccine mandates, right, which also goes into kind of workplace protections. And now we have this case here. And it's it's a real gutting of individuals' ability to participate in collective action, but also to have that action be protected under the law, right? So it's it's this moment where the court in labor relations, but I also think they've done it in other kind of speech-related cases, has a tendency towards seeing companies as deserving of protected abilities and everyone else as somehow not as valuable as those types of organizations, right? So so we are protected in purchasing ads, but we're not protected in like what we say in public to police officers, for example, right? Like these are all relatively recent courts under the Roberts court that are consistent ideologically, but distinct from one another, right? They're in, in different, they're using different parts of the constitution to base that decision, but they're all kind of finding similar corporate power as being more valid or more reliable or more useful to America, right? That this is a real question for us going forward about how much voice, speech, ability do we have in a democratic society, right? That this, to me, is kind of really at the core of how active and engaged can individuals be in their workplace, in their government, kind of all over the place. I don't want to be dramatic or hyperbolic, but I don't see this going in a good direction. I don't want to say, because people have been saying for the last 50 years, that everything is this kind of death knell of organized labor, right? Organized labor is resilient. It's, it's in my experience, adaptable and adaptive. But this is hard, man. This is really tough financially and legally and... I mean, labor unions have survived a lot of things, right? So people literally shooting at you, but this is this is shooting at your bank account, right? This is this is rough. Do they care these justices at how they're being looked at, or is it all? And I I don't mean to be flippant here, but just oh, the, you know, just those liberal whiners that you know are are so used to getting what they want. Does it matter to them? I don't have conversations with the justices. I, I do in my own thoughts as to what I would say and ask them about some of the absurd things that they say in oral arguments, all nine of them. So I can't speak to that. But what I can say is that many of them believe what they're saying. Neil Gorsuch believes that the administrative state is a blight on the Constitution, that it was illegal to pass the NLRA in 1939, and he thinks it was stupid to have Garmin in 1959, and he would love to see it go away. And I think that what Laura is absolutely correct. Our level of concern should be at code red, and it should be in two parts. One, it should be about the effects on labor and labor law and the ability of workers um, 
that is, is, is absolutely true. But it's in all other areas as well. Every area that the Supreme Court sees is affected right now. And that means that the legitimacy of the court is affected. The court is a political institution. It's always been a political institution. That's not new. What's new is that these six people were picked precisely to make certain decisions in a way that they weren't previously. The Federalist Society did not exist in order to vet candidates for previous presidents. And now they can very precisely say, this person will overturn Roe for you. This person will have this view on the Second Amendment for you. And so with that precision, and there's fantastic research being done on this by some really good friends of mine and Laura's that show just how they have influenced it. So we should be frightened, but I think the justices think they're doing the job. As to Roberts, I actually think he does care, Matt, and I think he cares because he knows that the rule of law is crumbling. He understands that the idea that the U.S. president was refusing to leave office is a problem. I mean, he's somebody who does understand and is an institutionalist. And so I think what he's worried about is his legacy. And he's worried about being the chief justice who oversees the end of a legitimate Supreme Court and the beginning of seeing the court as the political animal that it is. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.